This is the Rebellious Wellness Over 50 podcast for women over 50 who aren't done yet. You may have seen the worst of aging and are hoping there's a better way. There is, and I'm going to show you how. In interviews, book reviews, rants, and stories each week, I'm going to bring you the latest science-based info on how to age better. I'm Gregory Ann Cox, and I believe it's time to bust the myth that aging equals decline in every area of life. It pisses me off, and it's BS. Look, aging happens, but it doesn't have to ruin your life. You just need to get a little rebellious in your approach. Welcome back, everybody, to the Rebellious Wellness Over 50 podcast, where we learn to be a little bit rebellious about our health so that we can enjoy life the way we want to, not the way the world thinks that we should as we age. Today, my guest is Terry Sidhu, and we're going to talk about meditation. Please don't run screaming from the room if you have tried and failed before. Terry's going to help us understand, first of all, why meditation is so important. The fact that anybody can learn to meditate, even kids, he works with kids, he gets them to meditate, which I think Mm -hmm. is amazing. And I want to hear a little bit about, and even if you are a meditator already, Terry's going to give you maybe some information you hadn't heard or some thoughts for yourself when you're in meditation to take you into a deeper state. We're going to cover it all for you. So Terry, welcome. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for having me, Annette. This is a great opportunity. I'm looking forward to it. I love your energy too. And I love the energy from the podcast and the show. So very excited. Thank you so much. So you've been meditating since you were a little guy. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Started at nine years old and then grew my practice. I was meditating independently by the age of 12. Um, I was introduced to meditation from my mom. So um, it was very ingrained in me um, at a very young age. And then I, yeah, it's just kind of been part of my life. I don't, I don't know a world without meditation. So when I started realizing people weren't meditating, it was kind of almost like a culture shock to me. I was like, what? (laughs) You don't, it's like say people saying, yeah, we don't sleep. It was a very <laughs> bizarre experience to know or learn that the majority of the world just doesn't do this one intelligence that we have access to. It, it blew my mind. Yeah, I like that you called it an intelligence that we mm. don't access enough or we don't have access to some of us because I've experienced, I was reading a journal from last year because I was trying to tap back into early COVID days, just what I was thinking because I was really mm. doing a great meditation practice every day downstairs in a quiet room and I had some really great insights and then it would be like oh I skipped a day today I skipped two days today and a little before you knew it I was sporadic but Mm. when I do it I really do find either a sense of peace or I get an idea or like today I'm struggling to name a product that I have so I thought I'm gonna get done with Terry I'm gonna just go and sit in meditation for a while oh awesome brilliant I just noticed with a lot of my clients as well who say, you know, they started meditating and then they drop off. And then I was like, why am I dropping off? Why am I not able to build a consistent practice? And I think it's because we put too much emphasis on the idea of sitting and closing our eyes in contemplation. You know, you need an intention for that to go into that state. And sometimes when life is a blissful experience, it's not too challenging. Is there really much need to go into a deep, contemplative state of meditation. Meditation is a process that can go deeper and deeper and deeper, depending on the size of your question. You know, If you're looking to reduce stress, you may not need to go into such a state of contemplation. You can probably just start your breathing as you're walking down the street. Mm. However, if you're looking to find the solutions to like life's biggest problems, such as the meaning of life and what is the purpose of all this creation, you're probably going to want to sit in contemplation for that one. 
And that's some of the because of the misconceptions about meditation is that it's this exercise where we have to sit and be still and to stop all of our thoughts and be in a in, to exist in a state of stillness in this you know perfect void. It's <laughs> that's that's way way after. It takes a while to get there. Yeah, and as you said, it may not be that that's what everybody needs meditation yeah. for. You know, I mean, would you say that we should aspire to have deep meditation practices? I think less aspire to that. And I think just allow the inspiration to come when it arrives. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, for when I'm working with individuals who have severe mental health issues, such as depression and um, PTSD from childhood trauma, for instance, what happens is there is that desire to understand the meaning of life. There is this kind of disconnect with the experience of life that they're having. So teaching meditation to those individuals is actually quite easy because they already have the motivation. There's a desire to understand those higher, to develop those higher states of awareness. And I think teaching those individuals becomes easy because they're having such a disconnect from the experience of life that all I'm teaching them is how to detach and how to kind of navigate back into that state of stillness so that they can access those heightened states of being access those deeper questions and the inspiration is already there and someone who is depressed they already have that they're already wanting to know what is the meaning of all this what is the point of all this so the intentions there is just about developing the practice to get there but in the early stages you know just learn how to do the basics learn how to separate thought from experience learn how to separate your experience through your physical senses you know you can't think and feel at the exact same time you know, separate them a little bit. When I'm working with highly stressed individuals who have these corporate jobs, for instance, you know, dealing with kids who are just dem- overly demanding, I just tell them, it's like, get your thoughts in a meditation and get the experience of your physical sets is separate. And once you're able to do that, you've effectively started your meditation practice. Get a cup of tea, sit down and think. <laughs> there you go, you're meditating. Yeah, that's interesting because you're saying think, but then I have been taught, I'm sure I'm not the only one, to. Hmm. Not think, right? Just let the thoughts come in and out of your awareness, right? You just, oh, that was a thought, that was a thought, that was a thought. And then, mm-hmm. so then I was practicing a sensation meditation, like what am I feeling in my body? Mm-hmm. But that makes me think. Oh, yeah. I, I don't feel like I ever dropped into a place of stillness because mm-hmm. I was working so hard on getting it all right. Yeah. The whole, the thing is with meditation and the really what I found with teaching meditation is teaching people that you exist as so much more than your body. At the moment, a lot of people, what we understand about meditation, we're trying to meditate with our bodies. Like we're trying to exist as our bodies while we're in existing within our minds. And that's so counterintuitive to a meditation practice. One of the first lessons is to learn how to exist as consciousness, which sounds like a massive lesson to exist as consciousness. And it sounds like a massive lesson, but it actually isn't. Uh, when you think about, when I ask, tell them, the first thing I teach my clients and I teach kids this too as well, is when you think of a memory, when you think about what you had for breakfast this morning, are you physically with your body going to that memory? Are you physically walking up to your past and saying, this is what I had for breakfast? You know, you're not physically there. Your body only ever exists in the present moment. It can't exist in the past and it cannot exist in the future. I'm so sorry to burst that bubble, but the future doesn't exist for your body and the past simply doesn't exist for your body. Your body only can experience the present. 
Therefore, your body is limited in terms of what it can experience because it can only experience what's in the here and now for the physical senses. However, what you exist as when you're reliving a memory or when you have an idea or inspiration to do something or you get these ideas in your mind or creative ideas, you're not witnessing that with your physical eyes. You're not, win- you're not smelling that with your physical nose. You're not tasting that with your, with your tongue. You're not hearing it with your physical ears. What is that thing? And that's where we introduce consciousness, a conscious entity. You, as a conscious entity or consciousness, are navigating to the past, through, into the subconscious mind, into those realms of awareness, whereby you can revisit and relive your memories. You can go into states of the future, construct realities that you can bring into life, predetermined states. You know, if you think of a red lemon, you can think of it quite so easily, but then you can draw the picture in life. And there you go. You've just brought something in your mind out here into the world. And so once we kind of grasp that understanding that we exist as consciousness more than we do as body, then only then can we start understanding what meditation is and how to meditate. Unfortunately, we live in a world where we are so conditioned to appease our bodies and to appease other people's bodies. And fortunately and thankfully, I came from a culture whereby we were taught to recognize each other as consciousness. You know, I see you as a person, but I'm greeting you as a soul. And, um, you know, it's like, I I see your shell, but I I am experiencing something beyond that. Mm -hmm. And once we start understanding that about ourselves, when we start realizing, yeah, I can't, I as body, I as a being, I as a physical being can't travel through time. I literally can't. I can even put you in a, even if I put your body in a time machine, send you 20 years into the future, you're still only experiencing the present moment. Your body can only experience that presently. But your mind, consciousness itself, it can travel. The world of the mind is so much more expansive. You can go back to breakfast in your mind. You can think about what you want for dinner in your mind. You can, I can literally go back travel. to the first egg I cooked at five years old. Now that we're having this conversation, <laughs> never that moment. Now that you said breakfast for some reason, yeah, there you go. So already you know that your mind, what you exist as within, has more room to move. And we, I was actually having this conversation a couple of days ago with a friend, and I said, really, depression is when consciousness is trapped within a white picket fence. It's just created this world that it exists in and hasn't realized that it can roam beyond it. And it was just a really this profound moment that we were have discussing that because that's how I've always seen individuals with severe mental health issues. You know, it's almost like consciousness is trapped within one specific world of operation and it's getting people to just leave that world for five minutes. Mm-hmm. You know? And all of these new age meditations are saying, be in the present moment. How can you be in the present moment when your motivation is to escape it? It's again counterintuitive. <laughs> so there's there's a lot to learn. So existing as consciousness is very important. Yeah, that's a great reframe for me. Anyway, I hope for other people too. And we, I think, as a society in our country, anyway, and after COVID, many in the middle of the end of COVID, wherever we are, lots of people have been wanting to escape, mm-hmm. but they couldn't physically escape because they were locked down or they were, you know, wanting to stay safe. And so I don't know, has, have you gotten more clients because more people want to meditate? Is it more of a thing right now because of this need to go inside as opposed to always not being able to go outside? Well, since COVID, I was life coaching. My day-to-day, my life was life coaching. I was helping people develop goals, life plans. And obviously, when COVID happened, half of those goals just went out the window. 
And then I was hit with an onslaught of emails when COVID hit. I can't do this anymore. This is typical of my life. Why are you, every time I just start working, this happens. And like I was reading subject after subject after subject in my email inbox. I'm like, what is this? What am I teaching? What am I doing here? You know, why? And it was kind of like a realization that my clients weren't really listening to me. They were just using me as this tool to help them get through. I was like, that's what a therapist is for. I'm trying to get you motivated to go and live your life. And that's when I I took the conscious decision to start teaching meditation full-time because I realized every single person here, I can work with them one-on-one and get them to where they need to be with their minds and get their lives building again. But ultimately, what's that one thing I can teach all of them in one go? And that's when I realized I should be teaching them meditation. And that's when I made the conscious decision to start teaching meditation full-time because this is not the first time this is going to happen. If, co- if it's happened once, we are prepared for it. We know what's going on. It's just a matter of it happening again and all of this process all going through. Now is the time to start, I realized, teaching meditation for people to learn how to meditate. So the moment we hit in the next state of isolation, we know that we can travel beyond whatever is happening in the present moment. And that's all that needs to be taught. And so that's what I'm doing now. And so there was no direct demand for meditation. And I think it's because people didn't know that meditation was that right. available. There was more demand for coaching just for someone to talk to and break free. And you know, meditation is a very contemplative experience. It requires you to go in. It takes a certain level of commitment to access certain truths within your mind. And when you've got no one to talk to about those truths and you've got nothing wrong way to express those truths, it can become a bit of a daunting task. But yeah, there's a lot of learning that has to come with meditation first, which is why I decided to write the book during COVID and release that so that people have the education so they can get started and be prepared for the next wave. Now, I'm curious about specific types of people. You talked about people with depression. What about people with, I guess this is a motivation question, not so much a, is it valuable because I know it is. For people in pain or suffering from a chronic disease, the motivation to do almost anything when pain is present is diminished, right? Because it's yeah. so present. Is there a, a strategy or a way in for people in that condition that you could share? Absolutely. In the world today, we have been taught to avoid pain, suppress pain, or you know, just remedy pain as soon as it's there. Like find a pill, find this, just to get rid of the pain. We're just always taught to get rid of pain when it's present, which of course it makes sense. If there's pain here, it's making us feel uncomfortable. We don't want this in our lives. Therefore, we're doing everything we can to get rid of it. Meditation teaches us to be a little bit more intelligent with pain, right? It tells you to listen and be very aware and observe the pain. There's a reason why you feel pain when you cut yourself. You know, It's almost like consciousness moves directly there. Oh, there's a problem in life. Fix it, fix it, yeah. fix it, fix it. But the first thing we do is try and like wrap it up and just avoid it or whatever. We're not really focused. But before we go to the doctor, do we actually sit in contemplation and listen to the pain and really diagnose, okay, I'm feeling this, but when I breathe this way, it eases it a little bit better. When I move this way, it eases it a little bit better. That's basic yoga. And that's what's not taught about yoga either. It's listening to your body, listening to those pain points and moving consciousness to them. Like, for example, do you know how I said you can move consciousness to a memory? Mm-hmm. You can think, and so now think about moving it into different parts of your body, moving conscious into different areas of your body where, so for example, where you have pain, you can feel and assess that pain. Why is it there? How did it get there? 
and then start moving your body and start listening to your body and start thinking about how to remedy that pain consciously, like literally, rather than saying the automatic response being, I need to find this pill, I need to go speak to this doctor, I don't understand my body. Why don't you take the moment to understand your body a little bit better? And that's the intelligent where meditation comes in. It teaches you to really understand this tool that, this, that you have. With chronic pain, my dad has cancer. And so we've, I've been teaching him all these tools about how you can use meditation. And as much as I want to say how you can use meditation to heal cancer, I think we're a long way from actually developing those tools and teaching those tools and not saying they're impossible. There are definitely lots of stories and lots of case studies regarding that. But in terms of assessing and understanding that pain and the chronic illness that he's going through, I was teaching him a technique whereby I would say just sit quietly, just sit as comfortably still as you can. And that's the key part of it. Sit as comfortably still as you can. If you can't sit comfortably, the first part of your meditation is learning how to A, breathe, properly. So get into a control state with your breath so you can breathe and then position yourself and keep on positioning yourself until you can sustain that way of breathing so that you're pain-free and you can breathe comfortably. And that's your control state. Then with your meditation, you are learning how to exist in that comfort with that controlled breath for much longer and longer periods of time. You want to be able to walk, being able to sustain this way of breathing. You want to be able to talk through the sustaining this way of breathing. You want to be able to operate in this life with this way of breathing. And just to kind of wrap that up and summarize it a little bit, you find your controlled breath first. No matter how much pain you're experiencing, no matter what you're dealing with, the first thing you want to learn how to do is breathe comfortably. You know, when women talk about giving labor and stuff, like breathe, get into it. What's the first thing the doctor asks and checks when you admitted into the ER into the hospital? Are your airways clear? Breathing, breathing, breathing. Breathing is the source of your life. It's the reason why your body even has any life. That's the first place you start with your meditation. Get your breath right. And once you've got your breath right, you can start assessing all the experiences, be it physical, metaphysical, or anything out here in the experience of life that is affecting your breath. And it starts that way. And then you continue to remedy the situation based on the guidance of your breath. Okay, I can step this way. I'm still breathing comfortably. Oh, I can't move forward without breathing comfortably. Something's severely wrong. Now, intuition and intelligence is kicking in. How can I now move forward by being able to breathe comfortably? I think one of the problems in the world today, and speaking to a lot of people, is that we're not taught our control state of being. We kind of have an idea of what the normal experience of life is and how it should look, but we're not kind of taught how our normal conscious control state of being is. We do the experiments in science where you have the planted part and that's got everything, the light, the water, the soil. You know, you take the light away in one study, you take the water away from another plant, and you, you, but you measure it all against that control state. That's what your control breath is doing. So you measure the pain against it. You start measuring and you start realizing all the things in your life that are contributing to the pain, all the things that you're eating, all the things that you're drinking, consuming, how it's all affecting your breath and how it's contributing to the pain. Literally, once you understand your breath, you're the secrets of life all unravel. They really do. I love that you said that. And what came up for me is this, am I breathing right? What you said was find a comfortable way of breathing, not like breathe in for five and out for four, not 
Ujjayi breath, not just breathing as if we were just a human who knows how to breathe. But sometimes yeah. we, breathe, right? we forget when we're upset, when somebody's coming at us and we don't like the news, we do this, we hold our breath. And so it's not about doing it right or wrong. It's just about allowing the breath to be in and out of the body. Yeah. Yeah. When I teach kids meditation, I get, I get, put them all in different groups. And I'm like, right, you're going to breathe this way. And I tell you, you're going to breathe. And all I want you guys to do is breathe comfortably. So inhale and exhale through your nose and the most comfortable manner that you can. So kids are just going like this for two minutes. And then I'm getting another kids. I'm like, okay, you have to breathe fast for two minutes like this. <laughs> and then another kid was like, you have to breathe as slow as you can. And then now these kids are learning how important and valuable breath is to their experience of life. Mm-hmm. Who was taught that at school? You know, and then the next stage, I like this is why I want to get meditation into schools because a lot of, especially a lot of young people, they keep coming up to me like, I don't know what to do in my life. What do I do? And I was like, well, first learn how to breathe and then realize (laughs) what experiences you can navigate to that help you and can help you continue and sustain the way you want to breathe. And uh, when I'm working with my senior clients who are like, oh, I've, done everything right in life. I've got everything. I've got the perfect house, the perfect life. I've got all the investments. I'm retired, but I'm bored. What do I do? I was like, all right, let's go to breath. However you want to breathe for the rest of your life. Right now, what's the next experience you can do to sustain that way of life, that sustain that breath? What do you want to learn? Is there anything you want to learn? Do you want to transcend? Do you want to find the source of this breath? Then how about you sit in meditation, literally trying to find out where this breath is coming from? There you go. Now you're making the journey into transcendence and learning and building a closer relationship with your maker. What do you want? It all starts with breath. It's simple. Yeah, I I was laughing when you said, you know, kids don't know what they want to do. And you said, well, first you have to learn to breathe. And all I could think of was the parents that want you to say, you're going to go to an Ivy League school, (laughs) working from home. (laughs) Breathing probably wasn't what they had in mind, but what a great foundational piece is missing mm. for us. Yeah, I find it hilarious that I'm teaching this. <laughs> of all the wonderful skills that we've developed in the world, all the advances in technology, we have yet to really understand our breath and the value of it. We've completely become ignorant to the most foundation aspects of our lives. And I think really it's because they have become very convenient. Let's face it, and it continues to be more convenient. And Despite all the tragedies and difficulties that COVID has presented, it's also shown how convenient we've learned to live and how convenient life can become. Um, no, this is not for everyone. I understand there's a lot of um, economic struggles for a lot of people or financial struggles, but for a lot of us, food can be delivered. You know, the community, we're realizing that we can support each other as communities. We're learning how to take care of each other. We're learning what's important, what we need to maintain. And it's not been too difficult to get the food, to get the this. You know, it's as a species, we've learned to be very convenient to take care of our basic needs. But even watching the news, no one's talking about breathing. No one's talking about, you know, right, if you're stressed, go back to your breath and realize what took your breath away, what got in control of what made you breathe differently and sourcing that. Even most mental health struggles, it really is just that disconnection with breath and breathing. Because once you realize, oh, I can breathe, I can do this. Oh, I'm hungry. I need to eat. That's my next priority. Not making a million dollars. Okay, I'm going to eat now. Now that I've eaten, I need to rest. Okay, then that's what I'll do. And then it, it just builds and builds and builds and builds in there. 
You know, you have those Maslow's hierarchy of needs right under those physiological needs. Let's just put breath. <laughs> well, and breath from the Aramaic, maybe the Greek pneuma is spirit. The very first thing when we are considered alive, never mind politics, is that first breath. And that was said to be the spirit of consciousness in, you know, imbuing us with spirit. Given a way for us to see it is because we breathe. And it never really occurred to me until you said that a minute ago about if you think about your breath and then something else comes up, you're like, okay, I'm breathing, I can breathe, and now I'm hungry, I can eat. And then you said something earlier about all kinds of things will disrupt our breath, including food, the stressors of life. And I think because one of my focuses is on helping people learn to feed themselves. And I say everything is food because I consider everything, whether we think it or eat it or are surrounded by it, it affects our physiology. But I didn't have breathing in there. So I'm going to have to put breathing on my list of everything yeah. is food. <laughs> the breath is more I, foundational food than anything else without breath. It's like, yeah. we're gone, right? That's it. So can't even eat your food without breath. Exactly. How many of us take a breath while eating our food? Like we've just been taught to consume, consume, consume. <laughs> and yeah. even when cooking, ah, oh, this is a beautiful way to cook, just breathing between each. Actually, you forget cooking, shopping for your groceries and food. Uh-huh. One of the things I tr- tr- do as a, as a training exercise for those brand new to meditation is like, once you've got your carrots in your basket, take a conscious breath and think about what next you want to add to that basket. Mm. And really look at the food and breathe and think about how it makes you want to breathe. When you read the ingredients on a packet of biscuits or something, does that encourage you to breathe? Like your breath will teach you everything you need to know about your life. You start realizing the only way you need to build your life forward is a way that enables you to breathe. Maybe go esoteric for a brief moment. I know this is already esoteric, but uh, there's a couple of things I want to introduce about breath that will help make you realize the value of it. First, the Vedic sciences. So when I studied meditation as a kid, I was reading all these ancient scriptures and I was trying to find the English word for prana. Mm. And most of what was translated was prana is breathing, prana is breathing, prana is breathing. It's like, that does not make sense to me because prana is the vital life principle. How can it be breathing? And so what I started doing was teaching. So if you think of prana as this magic of life, this force that you know, that allows us to be alive. Breathing is the pump Mm. that keeps that force alive. So our rate of breath really determines how fast we're living our lives and really consciously controlling that pump. So once we get, and all we have to do as with our bodies is control that pump. Mm. And the more control we have over that pump, the more control we have over that prana of life and how how we disperse it, how we use it, how we connect to it. And so a lot of words in English are just aren't there. And that's where I realized why meditation is becoming such a difficult thing in the world. Like literally when I'm teaching kids, it's like, I think of prana like magic. You have this magic and you have this pump that keeps the magic alive. So whenever you think you're losing control of your magic and life is getting all crazy and all these things are happening, just get back in control of the pump and control it. Because the magic is just willed. It's like a hose pipe that's just losing. <laughs> like it's too much pressure. Breathe and get back control of it. And then the second thing I wanted to introduce, especially when working with individuals and this and senior individuals and, and, and a lot of younger clients as well, is when they feel as if they don't have value, that they don't have purpose mm-hmm. or passion in the world. I was like, look at, look at that tree over there and look at you and you in comparison to that tree. 
that tree is exhaling oxygen and inhaling carbon dioxide. Give or take a few, you know, elements, but you know, majority it's giving you oxygen and it's and it's receiving your carbon dioxide. And as a result, you're exhaling carbon dioxide and breathing in its oxygen. Just by breathing, you are keeping the world alive. Just by breathing, you play a vital role in the preservation of life. What makes you think? That like, and so long as you continue to live your life serving your breath, obviously life is going to start rewarding you and open up because you are consciously paying attention to the preservation of life. If you breathe, you are valuable. If you are not conscious of your breath, if you are breathing in a very stressed out, difficult way, then obviously life is going to be a very stressed out, difficult place to be because the way you're breathing is invaluable. Get your breath. Once you realize the value of your breath, and as long as you sustain a healthy breathing experience, life will start navigating the way you need it to navigate to. Because you're basing now not the needs of the body, but the needs of the breath. And once you've got that lesson in place, have fun. Have as much fun as you want. I couldn't help but think of the heart when you said the pump. So the Mm. breath is the pump, but it's actually facilitating a healthier pump, physical organ called the heart. I was in the doctor's office with my husband who had to have his blood pressure taken or something. And the doctor was female. She was a nurse practitioner. She just walked behind him and she put her hand on his shoulder and talked to him for a second or two and said, just do me a favor, take a deep breath. Oh, good. Okay. Your lungs are clear. Then she did his blood pressure. And I said, why did you do that? She said, because I could tell he was all breathing hard and his blood pressure would have shown higher than it really is. Mm -hmm. And he calmed right down. But the point being, we can get misdiagnoses because of, you know, erratic breathing, we're nervous, we've got white lab coat, hypertension, whatever. Mm -hmm. But there is also the real repercussions of too shallow breathing, too much stress on the body, not honoring the breath to slow us down. Like everything you've said made me think, I don't have time for this. It's too slow. Mm -hmm. I have to think of my breath. I'm kidding in a way, but I know that that's a common way of thinking about this whole change of the way we look at this is not, this is going to take too long, but this is my life. How much mm-hmm. would I not give to have more life and to have a yeah. fuller life and a richer life? It's just all interconnected, the body, the breath. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah. The bre- I mean, when people say like, because I've had a few clients as well who say, yeah, when you say the pump, I'm always thinking about the heart. I was like, are you in control of that heart pump? I was like, can you control the heart pump as easily as your lungs? I was like, the, the breath is your manual pump. The heart, it's a beat. It's a rhythm. Mm-hmm. I was taught what I was understood about the heart and what I was taught about the heart was that the heart is a communicator. It's a tool that communicates to the rest of the body mm-hmm. as opposed to, I mean, it pumps blood to the rest of the body. Absolutely. Ultimately the heart's role in the body is a communication and how the heart beats and how the frequency of the heart determines what we're experiencing. And, and it teaches us, it basically expresses how we're communicating or what we're feeling and communicating. That's why love and emotion and all that's connected to the heart because it does it does something to it. When I try and demonstrate the heart's role in this whole kind of physical experience of life, what I get people to do is some do something to get out of breath. So I get them to run really fast on the spot, get them to jog, and obviously the heart's going like that now. I was like, right, find your pulse, engage conscious controlled breathing, and slowly notice how much the breath controls the pace of the heart. Mm. This knowledge like this can really i mean it's obviously research has to go into it and i'm no doctor but um, it can help save people's lives 
if oh. people understood. Oh, and the thing is about being aware, aware of the breath and the pace of breath is that you can start measuring when things are getting out of control. Save you from panic attacks. You can sense anxiety before it comes and attacks mm-hmm. you. You can, you can sense a heart attack before it comes because you're restoring your breath. So you're slowing your heart and you're, but even then listening to your breath, understanding what foods take your breath away. And I was noticing this actually when I was in university, like every, we'd all go out and you know, get drunk and do all our thing, but then we're eating the most terrible foods. But the way we're eating that food is just, like, we're not even taking a breath and we're consuming it. And then at the end of it, we're just like, <laughs> you know, passed out. And without that important vital role of breathing involved in that whole process, I mean, obviously it's going to be clogging our arteries and having causing all sorts of um, physical health issues because we're completely dismissing this idea of breathing and how important it is in our understanding of how this body works and how to navigate and operate through this life. If we dismiss that one aspect, which we tend to do because we're not taught, as long as we're breathing, everything's fine. As long as that air's going in and out, you're good. No, it's, it's the controlling that and understanding that force is what, when it's good. It's when you know how much air to intake and how much air to exhale is when it start, life starts to get really good. Do you think we don't exhale enough? Do you think it's easier to take an inhale breath for most of us and we just sort of shorten that exhale breath? Is that? I think it differs from person to person. Oh, it does? Okay. I do. I do. I think, I think generally we do inhale and exhale. I think before understanding how much to inhale and exhale, I think the first level is just to be aware of breath, to be conscious of it, to be aware that we are inhaling and exhaling. And the thing is, once you start sitting in contemplation and start breathing in that way, you start realizing the value of slowing that breath down. The first yogic lesson that I understood or I embraced was the longer the breath, the longer the inhale and exhale, the longer the life. And and you start seeing these results and you start looking at these yogis that are living past 100 and living for many, many years after. It's Breath is that vital role. And even speaking to people who are you know, in their 90s, you know, past 100 years old, you realize it's just the way they breathe is very different. It's very peculiar. It's very intentional almost. If you want to live a long time, obviously you want to take care of the one thing that preserves your life. And that's your breath. Not what you eat, not what you drink. People go for days fasting, no problem. Mm-hmm. You know, the moment you realize things are going wrong is when the breath starts running out and you're like, oh, I need to feel this thing. <laughs> you know, and food and fuel fuels the body so that you can continue breathing. That's all that it does. Everything about life is designed to help you stay breathing. Everything about your body. You know, we always we're focused on heart health, but we very rarely, rarely focus on on our our lungs and our breathing health and it it just blows my mind that it's just knowledge that's not there and yet it's literally the foundation of all life on earth well i'm going to do my part to get the word out for you terry (laughs) thank you your book and where can people find it what's the title the title is uh meditate i'll get the cover right here there it is meditate breathe into meditation and awaken your potential so I wanted to, and you can get it, just visit meditatethebook.com and it can link you directly to the site on Amazon. And that's where I'm selling it most of the time. I'm an independent author. So Amazon is the best marketplace for me yeah. to be able to read the book. Um, but yes, meditate, breathe into meditation and awaken your potential. And I've designed it very specifically and I've put the book together so that it teaches the fundamentals. It makes meditation easy. I take as much of that 
dogmatic and esoteric knowledge out as I could. You know, it was double the size when I finished it, but then I reduced it down and just took all. There was too much. Um, I realized when I started going into the deepening your meditation section, I realized I was putting too, I was giving away too much. Mm-hmm. I was like, what's the point in meditating? I'm t- I want to teach the tools to help you realize these higher states of awareness, to help you understand and help you find the an- answers to the questions that you have. And the only reason why I, I knew the, I realized the importance of that was I was working with clients who were going on like ayahuasca retreats or going on retreats where they were taking psychedelics and having these awakenings. And one client was saying, yeah, I met Buddha. Another client was saying, I met Jesus. Another client was like, I met Krishna. So you have all these individual people who are connecting with this energy of love, let's call it, and having different subconscious contexts based on their experiences of life wrapped around it. And so I realized that's what I was doing by presenting my ideas of what creation is and my ideas of what I thought what the world was about. But I can only give you what I've understood and learned about the world, the context mm-hmm. in which I have in my memory bank and what I've learned in school and study and whatnot. So it's kind of pointless because someone on the other half of the world will have a completely different state. And then you start understanding why religions are so different and drastically different. So what if we just taught the formula? What if we just taught the basics? So that people could understand, just understand the different realms that they connect, the difference between body and consciousness, the difference between the heart and the breath. These little simple tools that we all have that unify us all, we can just breathe right for ourselves and study ourselves, you know, study our experience of life, study us as an individual. Like I'm not teaching you to meditate my way. I'm encouraging you to learn meditation your way, mm-hmm. to breathe your way, to discover your truth. And once you've got that intact, oh, life is yours to take. Well, and we say no more. That's just a perfect ending as far as I can tell. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. You've done a lot of um, reframes. I have to go back to that word. For me, I hope for my listeners as well. And made meditation sound less daunting, less like a system I have to master because there's a, plenty of those running a business, as you know. Yeah. Um, and more like something that I could access that could be enjoyable, make life yeah, better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very, very much for being with us. I hope to see you around on the interwebs. I'll find you yeah. on Instagram. You're everywhere. Instagram, Facebook, you've got all kinds of places. Yeah. And pick up the book, meditate. Everything we've talked about is in that book. And it sounds like it's going to be a pretty simple way to get started and maybe find the motivation to keep going. Terry, thank yeah. you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Be well till next time, peeps. I will see you again soon. That's the end of another episode of the Rebellious Wellness Over 50 podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. If there's anything that you heard or hear when you tune in that you think would benefit a friend, a sister, a mother, hey, even some guys, send them my way, would you? And if you've not ever been to the website, rebelliouswellnessover50.com, head on over there. There are resources, things that I don't always get to on the podcast that might help you age better. Be well till next time and stay that way.